morning. Good to see all of you this morning. You sound fantastic. And uh, I'm so glad to be in worship with you today. If we've never been introduced, my name is Connor Bales, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here at the North Campus of our church. And on behalf of our entire staff family, welcome to worship at Prestonwood. If you brought your copy of God's Word, go with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And uh, as you're making your way to John 4, I'll remind you of something Toshin mentioned a moment ago. And that is our VBS at Prestonwood, we call that Adventure Week is coming. And so this summer, that's a big deal for us, an opportunity to serve literally thousands of students. And so I'm asking for your help. We need more volunteers. And so I'm asking when we're dismissed that you would consider stopping by that uh, registration table out in the atrium. We need students to serve. We need uh, grandparents to serve. We need adults of all ages uh, to serve. Uh, This is a, a ministry of our church that serves elementary age kiddos and our special friends of all ages and abilities. And so uh, please prayerfully consider uh, partnering with us in that great endeavor. BBS is a big deal. It's an opportunity for us to introduce students to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I'm asking that you would volunteer to partner with us in that great work. Now, last Uh, Sunday, we began what I described to you as a series within the series. You know, we've been in this sermon series entitled, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. And then last Sunday, we started this sub-series where we're examining the seven great sign miracles of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of John. And we began with that very first miracle of Jesus happening at a wedding celebration in Cana. And Jesus converts water into wine. He turned water at that celebration into wine for the purposes of bringing added joy to that celebration. And the way we kind of walked through that miracle of God was to examine some of the characters and draw out of them what are the significant realities that come from a miraculous intervention of Jesus. And so we said specifically, Jesus brings joy He was at a wedding. He was celebrating God's gift of marriage. And he showed up at a party. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's a God of joy. And so Jesus showed up and we examined the joy that he brings. We talked about the trust of Mary. Do you remember when there was a problem? She goes to Jesus and says, hey, we're out of wine. And, And Jesus has this dialogue with her back and forth. And then she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. She just has this supernatural trust or confidence in Jesus as he's the one who has the capacity to actually change things. We highlighted the obedience of the servants to Jesus. And specifically, you'll remember, it wasn't just uh, obedience for the purposes of checking the box, but rather when Jesus told them to fill the jars with water, the Bible says specifically they filled them to the brim. So if obedience is good, then obedience with the expectation that God is going to provide is better. And last week, I challenged us to be some people who fill it to the brim. And we talked about the blessing that is received from the wedding guests, that the world says you get the best first, but the kingdom of God is upside down, and he saves the best for last. That is the reality of what his grace has achieved for us. And then that was the last thing. We talked about the grace of God in Jesus, that he has the capacity to actually change things, to supernaturally take what was ritualistic and religious, and by his relationship, he changes things. Like water was changed into wine, he has changed us by his blood, which is the new covenant, into new creatures who belong wholly and completely to him. And 
We also highlighted at the start of our time together that while these are the recorded miracles of Jesus, they're not the only miracles of Jesus. I actually love the way John begins to wind down the gospel that bears his name. Because at the end of John, he tells us Jesus had purpose in performing miracles, and I have recorded them for that purpose to be received. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, Jesus did many other signs. That's a Greek word for miracles. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then again, as he concludes his letter, he says in John 21, 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John says the work of God is inexhaustible. There's no way for us to have remembered and recorded all of it. Why? Because it is attributed as assigned to God. And so this miracle today is a miracle of healing. And so we're going to read this story found in John chapter 4. It starts in verse 46, and we'll read all the way through verse 54. And I want us to examine not only the why Jesus did, but the how Jesus did as it relates to this miracle that is response to an individual's faith founded in him. This is John chapter 4. Let's read together, starting in verse 46. John 4, starting in 46. If you're there, say, I got it. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made, uh, made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Some of your translations might say uh, nobleman. This was uh, a Roman uh, a citizen who uh, had power according to uh, Roman government. And so he was, while publicly powerful... He was spiritually to be perceived as an outcast. This was not a Jewish individual uh, who had an allegiance or a devotion to God, right? So he has public power, but spiritually he is believed to be an outcast. Now, here's why I bring that to your attention. Because if you're familiar with your New Testament, you know in John chapter 4, Jesus just had a real rich encounter with someone who was believed to be spiritually outcast. It was the woman at the well in Samaria. And so Jesus has already said, there's no one who's too far gone for me. It doesn't matter whether or not you have cast them out. I have come to draw them in. Pick it up in verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him. If you mark your Bibles, underline that phrase. He went to him. And he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's not a question Jesus asks. It's a statement that he makes. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. I'll, I'll just take two things very quickly, and then we'll read the balance of this story. First of all, I think it's fascinating that according to the miracle we saw at Cana last Sunday and also this miracle we're reading here now, don't you think it is interesting that it is the servants who are the first to witness the supernatural miracle work of God, which seems like something that God would do. Because according to the upside down kingdom, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. 
So often those that the world might discard as being less than God's intervention seem to be the first ones to witness it when Jesus shows up on the scene. Here's the second thing I'll bring to your attention. Last week, we got to witness when Jesus turned water to wine, his omnipotence. That word omnipotence, it is a theological word. It means all-powerful. So we got to see the all-powerful way in which Jesus has dominion over the biological, over the natural, over the ordered elements, even regarding the chemical makeup of H2O and the chemical makeup of wine. He turned water into wine. His omnipotence, his all-power was very visible in that miracle. What we get to see here is his omnipresence, that Jesus can be everywhere, anytime, because he is not bound by time constraints like are you and I. And so even though he is not physically present, he is able to physically heal. Pick it up in verse 52. So he asked him the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that the big idea of this miracle rests in the power of a person's faith when it is founded in Jesus. The significance of faith is only as significant as its object. And in this case, this father has faith in Jesus. In fact, I would even argue what we're going to see today is it's desperate faith. This was faith that was born in a crisis. And so what is it that we can learn about faith? The first thing is this, the father moves toward Jesus in belief. I had you underline uh, that phrase in verse 46. This father was so desperate because of his son's illness and his son's illness was so severe that the father says, my son is dying. Like this isn't Motrin and Tylenol. His son is dying. And the father's so desperate because of the severity of his illness that he is willing to forsake whatever it's going to cost him. And by the way, genuine faith always costs you something. And he's willing to forsake whatever it's going to cost him to what? Move toward Jesus in belief. This was faith born in a crisis. I've been there, haven't you? Right? You ever had those moments when you don't know what to do? The only thing you can do is just call out to God, move toward God in your desperation. Now, I will tell you, here's my experience as a pastor as to what I observe many people do in response to a crisis. I think there are three, most often, the three responses to a crisis. The one is it paralyzes you. Meaning it causes us to freeze. We feel stuck. We feel helpless. We feel hopeless. And so there's nothing that we know to do in response to that. We're just paralyzed. We feel like there's no way forward and we don't want to go back. We feel completely stuck. Some of you are here today. You're in a crisis and you're paralyzed because of it. Here's the second thing I see. Some it pushes away from God. So when a crisis shows up, and listen, a crisis can look any way to any person. I mean, it's whatever is difficult, whatever it is causing you to suffer, whatever hardship you're having to navigate and endure, right? That's a crisis. And for some, it paralyzes. For others, it pushes us away from God. We're angry. How can you let this happen? What is it that you've done? Did you just take your eye off the ball? 
And so it causes us to be pushed away from God. Confession, that's where I was in 2008 when we received our daughter's diagnosis of trisomy 16p. Initially, when we received Libby's diagnosis and the geneticist told us that she will not outlive her infancy, go home and make her comfortable, I was angry. I was angry for two reasons. One was because I felt like Libby was innocent. She had done nothing to deserve this difficult life that she was going to endure for even the brevity of the time that God was going to give it. And the second, I'm embarrassed to tell you, but I will because we're honest. I also was angry because I thought, God, I'm surrendered to the ministry. I'm selling my business, and my family's gone all in with this. And this is how you respond? I was angry. It pushed me away from God. Some it paralyzes, some it pushes away. But here's the third. Some it pulls toward God. It pulls us closer to God. That's what I observe as it relates to how people respond inevitably when a crisis shows up. This father responded to his crisis with faith that drew him closer to God. But listen, let's don't minimize it. It cost him something. First of all, I would say it probably cost him some of his power. Some of your translations say he was a nobleman. Others are going to say it's an, he was an official. What you need to know is he had authority. He had some type of regional governmental rule. This was a man of prominence. In the first century, this was a man of power. And so by condescending by being willing to humble himself and move toward Jesus. This Jewish outcast, this Jewish rabbi, this man probably lost some power as a result. But listen, he had to have certainly compromised his popularity. It must have cost him his popularity. But listen, I want to challenge you. Genuine faith is going to, at times, force you and I to forsake the opinion of others. Somebody needs this word this morning. Listen, if you're going to follow wholeheartedly, completely after Jesus, look up here at me, at times you're going to be labeled the weirdo. Your kid is going to be the weirdo. You're going to be the weird one in your neighborhood. You're going to be the weird one in your office. Why? Because you pray at work or because you say things like, I'm choosing to trust God. Or we're not going to do that. Or we're not going to go there. We're not going to respond this way. When crisis shows up, This father, in desperation, he moved toward Jesus in belief. I think there are some of you who are here today, and you need to move toward him. You just need to move toward him like this dad did. Here's the second thing we see. The father pleads with Jesus in belief. He pleads with Jesus. I I love the scriptures. I tell you that all the time. And one of the reasons is because they don't hold anything back. They record the actual conversations, the actual moments when engagement took place. And you can feel the raw, honest emotion of this dad's encounter with Jesus when he needs God to show up and to change things. He says, Jesus, would you please come and heal my son? He's really sick. He's going to die. Jesus responds with a statement, not a question, Unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. But you notice he doesn't leave with his shoulders slumped, defeated, and how Jesus responds. No, he channels that desperate faith, and he's willing to engage. He's willing to go in. I'm asking that you would please come now. He's going to die. And Jesus says, no, go. Your son is going to live. I mean, can you hear the desperation in this dad's voice? I've had that moment. I've shared this story with you before. It's the best one I know to, to give. In the summer of 2011, 
Uh, my family went to Red River for family vacation. We love Red River. It's a great mountain town. It's uh, uh, family friendly and somewhat affordable. So it checks all the boxes for us. And, uh, and so we had gone to Red River uh, for family vacation. And we didn't know this at the time, but when we went up to Cap Rock, uh, uh, Libby's ears plugged, right? And so, you know, when you have an elevation change, and we all just hold our nose and, and pop our ears, but my girls can't do that. And so we didn't know that, but it, a, an ear infection began to settle in. And so we did all our tricks. We're pushing Motrin, we're pushing Tylenol, we're trying, you know, trying everything when we get to the mountains because it's been a couple of days and Libby is very uncomfortable and it's getting much, much worse. Finally, about day three in the middle of the night, I've just had enough. None, Mary and I are not sleeping. Libby is miserable. We think something is really, really wrong. And so I tell Mary, I said, stay here and I'm going to take Libby to Taos and take her to the emergency room. So about 45 minutes from Red River to Taos and we go into the emergency room and I'm just going to tell you the overnight doctor and staff we're not prepared for a, t a child with trisomy 16P in the Taos ER and a dad with some desperate faith. I'm just going to say, they weren't ready, all right? We came in guns blazing. We were hot. <laughs> and so uh, after a few minutes of them just trying to listen and, and process all the things I was trying to describe, uh, we, I just didn't feel like we were getting much in the way of adequate attention. Okay, And so after a couple of hours of not feeling like we had any help, then I just, Libby was still small at the time. She's a big girl now, but she's small at the time. So I just picked her up and put her on my hip. And I got out of our hospital room, yes, and I started walking down the hall with Libby on my hip. And I'm walking past that nurse's station. And I'm praying out loud, God, in Jesus' name, I'm asking that you would heal this little girl. She's obviously miserable, and nobody knows what to do. So, Lord, I'm asking... This is true, man. I was desperate. But listen, here's what I want to encourage you. I think some of you need to recognize in your desperation, call out to God like this dad did. But I'm going to show you two things we can learn. One is we get a glimpse into the heart of God. Did you notice that Jesus never rebukes this dad for being raw in his emotion? He doesn't. Jesus doesn't correct him for saying, how dare you come to me? How dare you come to me so desperately? You know what he does? He responds with sympathy and compassion. Why? Because that's the heart of God. I don't know where we got off within the church, and I don't mean Prestonwood, I mean the big C, where we think we can't be honest with God about our raw and real emotion when a crisis shows up. Like we think we got to have it all buttoned up, and we got to uh, pray this way and specifically, and we got to say all these big words, and we got to make sure... Listen, you just need to go to the God who authored your emotions with your emotions and be real with him about how bad you're hurting when a crisis shows up. That's what this dad does. And we get a glimpse into the heart of God as to how he responds to that. But I also want to challenge you, this dad doesn't apologize for taking his raw emotion to God. I think there's something in there for us to learn as well. That we can be a people who plead for ourselves, for our family, for our friends inevitably when crisis happens. The father moves toward Jesus in belief. He pleads with Jesus in belief. Here's the third thing I see. The father responds to Jesus in belief. You remember last week we highlighted um, Mary had this supernatural trust that the only thing she tells the servants after she tells Jesus the problem is, hey, do whatever he says. It's like this father has that kind of faith in Jesus to actually affect any significant change because the Bible says that at his word, he immediately returned home. Like as soon as Jesus said, go, your son will live. You know, he didn't say, well, do you have a picture? 
Do, is there anything, like, is, what do you want, is there something we should do? I haven't had, nobody's couriered the information that he's okay. It just immediately at Jesus' word, the father turns around and heads home to see his healed son. Something significant about that trust in God to actually affect a change when a crisis shows up and we plead. And then to believe him when he gives us that word that says he is going to live. I think it reminds me of that moment um, when Jesus calls his first disciples. He's walking on the shore of Galilee in Luke chapter 5, verse 5. The Bible says that the fishermen had been fishing all night. This is what they did for a living. And so early the next day, Jesus is walking along the shore of the lake, and he looks over and he tells Simon Peter, hey, cast your nets on the other side. And, and you know, Simon Peter, he's like, uh, Rabbi, we've been, we've been fishing all night. You know, I, I know in his mind, he's like, this is what we do, boy. Like, that's got to be what he's thinking. And, and so he says, cast your nets on the other side. And, and Simon Peter responds and he says, Master, we've been fishing all night, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And what happens? They haul in a catch that's so significant, they have to call in for backup to help get it on board the boat. Peter falls down at his face and says, depart from me, I am a wicked man. There is this idea that at the word of Jesus, there is this full surrender of those who have been called to follow him. I think that me and you need to be a people who fully surrender to whatever the word of God is. Whatever the word of God is. So look again, verse 50, Jesus said to him, go and your son will live. And the man believed, circle that word. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. You know, a long time ago, before we were living in this modern era that we are now, a long time ago, the way in which a contract was executed was someone's word and a handshake. Now we have lawyers and teams of lawyers that have to draft very complicated legal agreements that are then binding in a court of law that can then be, uh, uh, they can be uh, held up uh, and, and they can withstand litigation and, and they can hold people accountable. But back in the day, it was just an individual's word that had them accountable. Here, here's what I would tell you. God needs no lawyer. His word is binding. It is irrevocable. And if God says it, he will do it. You can trust it completely. You need not grab your own spiritual legal team to have to tell you what will work and what won't work, what might happen, what could happen. Because God's word is binding. And so I want to just share with you just some of the words of God. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus speaks and he says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. What is his word? If you confess me, I'm going to validate you. That's his word. And it's irrevocable. How about John chapter 6 and verse 37, when Jesus speaks and he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Well, what's his word? You can have eternal security. You can know that if you belong to me, you are forever with me, and nothing can change that. How about Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, and Jesus speaks and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Well, what's his word? You have purpose. You have purpose. If you follow me, I'm going to have you fishing for people. You are going to be a fisher of men. You have purpose, and we can trust him 
at his word. How about Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, when Jesus speaks and he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Well, what's his word? He gives us rest for the soul. You feel tired. Some of you are, your crisis is exhaustion. Well, the word of God says, I'm your source of rest. How about John chapter 14 and verse 16? When Jesus speaks and he says, I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another helper, and he'll be with you forever. Well, what's his word? You got help coming. And he's the Holy Spirit, the very one that was within me, empowering me, resurrecting me from the grave, lives now within you. You can believe him at his word. How about John 14, 6, when Jesus speaks and says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, what's his word? I'm the source of your salvation. Some of us are like the disciples in that upper room. We think, well, I don't know the way. How can we know the way? I'm confused. Crisis has shown up. I don't know if I'm supposed to go this way or that way. I feel paralyzed. At times I've been pushed. And Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father. You cannot have everlasting life with God except through me. We can believe him at his word. But listen, we've got to believe him for what he has said, which I just read to you some. And we can't believe him for what he has not said. We, we have to believe him for what he has promised, and the, and the scriptures tell us what that is, but we can't believe him for what he has not promised. This is Mary's testimony. When we received Libby's diagnosis in 2008, Mary would tell you that for a long time she was praying, God, I, I'm asking that you would realign Libby's chromosomes, and I'm asking that you would heal her of this diagnosis, and I'm asking that you would completely make her whole because the geneticist had told us that she wasn't going to live very long. And we knew that for however long she was going to be allowed to, to live, it would be a very rough existence to be certain and sure. God responded to that. I haven't promised you I'm going to heal Libby. I've promised you that I will be with you for every moment of her life that I entrust to you. Some of you are holding on to a promise that God hadn't made. But we need to be a people who at his word believe him in the promises that he has. I'm never going to leave you. When you're tired, come to me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. Right? I mean, think about those Hebrew boys in Daniel chapter 3 that got thrown into the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some of you know this children's story. Listen to me. This is a story we never outgrow. It's not a kid's story. It's a Bible story. And when the king told them, you better hope and pray that your God is going to save you. They said, oh, king, we need not consult God about this. Our God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing our knee to you. The idea is that God is able to heal. But even if he doesn't, I'm going to choose him. I'm going to choose to trust him no matter what. This father moved toward Jesus in belief. He pleaded with Jesus in belief. He responds to Jesus in belief. And ultimately, he is saved by Jesus in belief. According to verses 52 and 53, the father's life is blessed in two ways. One, his son was healed. His boy lived. You think God doesn't care about your life? You think God doesn't care about your pain? You think God doesn't care about your hurt and your hardship and what has you up every night? This father's son was healed. But beyond that, this father's eternity was changed. 
right? The Bible says he believed him and he and his household were saved. Which again, that's the reason why Jesus performed the miracles and why John told us he preserved them and wrote them down. So that by believing, we may have life in his name. So think about this father's journey with me. This was faith that was born in crisis. I don't know if he had been paralyzed. I don't know if he had been pushed away. But this is faith that was born in a crisis. It resulted in a confrontation. We learned something from this dad. He was willing to plead with Jesus to intervene, right? So it moved from crisis to confrontation. It was then confirmed in that when Jesus spoke and said, your son is well, the father didn't wait for proof. He headed home so he could see. And it ultimately led to a contagious response, a contagious faith, so that not only was this dad changed, but so was everybody else around him. Right? A genuine faith is contagious. When people see the God in you, they want that God that has you. And so if I can encourage you today, here it is. Don't waste your crisis. Look, don't waste your crisis. Because God isn't. He's not wasting it. And I don't know where you are in your journey with Jesus. I, I don't know what it is that has you. Maybe it's pushed you. Maybe it's paralyzed you. But what if God, well, look at, what if God hasn't entrusted it to you to pull you closer to him? Is it possible that through this crisis, through this difficulty, through your pain, is it possible that you would not look like Jesus like you do if it had not been for the hardship that God entrusted to you? Don't waste it. Because in the hands of Jesus, he's not. He's not wasting it. And so neither should we. And so I ask you every Sunday as a part of this sermon series, what are we going to do with Jesus? But this Sunday, I'm going to help answer that for you. We're going to pray and we're going to ask him for the miracle of healing. That's what we're going to do. And so... Here's what I want you to understand. Healing doesn't have to be, although it certainly could be, physical healing from some type of diagnosis, some type of difficulty, some type of lingering, ongoing medical or health complication that you endure. In the last service, we had an individual who was diagnosed with cancer last week. And so there are some of you who need a physical healing in your life. Maybe someone in your family, someone that you know, someone that you love needs a supernatural physical healing. If God wants to use the wisdom of men, the advances of medicine, or if he wants to perform a miracle right here, right now, we're going to believe him for that. And we're going to ask. We're going to move toward Jesus in belief. But some of you need the healing of a broken heart. I don't know what happened. I don't know. Maybe what pushed you away is that you have a church hurt. Here's what I want to say to you as a pastor of a church. You ready? Look up here at me. If you are wounded because of the actions of someone in a church, or in particular, someone in church leadership, I am so sorry that that happened to you. That was not Jesus. It was someone that belongs to him, but it wasn't Jesus. And I am so sorry if you are wounded and it broke your heart. I don't know if someone broke your heart or if something broke your heart. I don't know what has you paralyzed or what has pushed you away. But I know we can ask God to heal it. 
Some of you have a broken relationship. It's your marriage. It's a relationship with a child or a grandchild. It's a relationship with a sibling or a coworker or a friend. There's a broken relationship, and we need to ask Jesus to heal it. He is in the business of restoring. Some of you need a healing in your mind. Maybe you battle anxiety. You're crippled with fear. Maybe you are suffering from a depression, and you can't seem to find your way out. I've been there. I've been there. But let's ask God to heal. Let's ask God to wave the clouds away and to give you clarity, to renew your purpose. Why wouldn't we move toward Jesus in belief? Some of you need healing financially. Some of you need healing relationally. Some of you need healing circumstantially. You've got an issue in your life. You've got a problem at work. You've got something you're trying to navigate, a, a difficulty or a hardship that God has entrusted for you to endure. Why wouldn't we ask Jesus to heal it? Why wouldn't we be willing to move toward God in belief? And so, that's what we're going to do. In fact, in just a moment, this altar will be filled with ministers and leaders in our church. And I am going to ask you to be willing to step out in faith and come forward and let's pray together for your miracle. Let's pray for your miracle. Let's ask God to provide for you, to intervene for you. To change something, to change your circumstance. He doesn't have to be physically present to heal physically. Why? Because he's God. And so why wouldn't we ask him to simply intervene and to do what only he can do? I'm asking that you would be bold enough and honest enough and listen, vulnerable enough to call out to God in desperate faith, in desperate faith, and believe that he can change. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I'm praying now as we enter into this time of response that we would be a people all over this room. Some need the healing of salvation. Some need the healing of restoration. Some need the healing of a physical miracle in their life. God, I'm praying that we would be bold, that we would step out and that we would ask you. We would move toward you, plead with you, and ask from you for a miracle in our life. God, we love you. We cannot do this without you. So I pray to you in Jesus' good name. Amen.